The second letter of John, let us read the entirety of this letter. It is quite brief, 13 verses. Let us pray before we read. O gracious God, help us now as we read your word and hear it preached. We ask for much help. Lord, if you do not help us, we cannot be helped by ourselves. We have not in ourselves what is necessary to benefit from this means of grace. It is not even enough just for us to be present to it. We call upon you, Lord. Your means of grace is a spiritual work according to your pleasure. We confess, Lord, that your means of grace are not anywhere we would please to put ourselves, but where you are pleased to summon us. But even so, we recognize we need your mercy. We need your grace to open to us by your own hand. So, Lord, open our hearts to hear and receive. Grant us to understand by faith and understanding to believe and believing to do. Reform us, Lord, even by this word tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The second letter of John, chapter 1, verse 1 through 13. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is God's word. In our scripture reading just tonight, we have heard John, who identifies himself as a presbyter, translated elder in your English Bible. John, in this brief pastoral letter, urges a local church to remain alert. Watch yourself. To remain alert and to remain sharp and to remain faithful to two basic priorities, truth and love. Truth and love. These two priorities, John will show, are bound together and cannot be separated. 
What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. I know that verse is about marriage, but you are just seeing now that there is another marriage that you should do nothing to bring infidelity to it. It's the union of truth and love. Where there is Christian truth, there must be Christian love. Truth is the root. Love is the fruit. Wherever God plants Christian truth, there will be ripening Christian love. Why? Because truth is firm and fixed and unchangeable. It does not change when another person comes to it. Truth does not change when 10 people come to it. Truth does not change when 100 people or 1,000 people or 10,000 people come to it. Truth is such a thing that more and more people can come to it, and it remains unchanged. But the people who come to it are changed, and they are changed in this way. They each abandon the beliefs and abandon the behaviors they used to practice, which they now know do not agree with the truth. That's the change of love's ripening because of the truth. In this way, the truth, which does not change, does change each person who comes to it. But it is not the common experience of personal change. No, it is not the common experience of personal change that makes these changed people love one another. It is the one unchangeable truth which they have all come to that makes them love one another. For it is this truth which they are all gladly losing themselves for, which draws them together and keeps them together. It is this one unchangeable truth they wish to give to each other, receive from each other, which makes them to love one another more and more. So John, the presbyter, loves the elect lady and her children in truth. This means John loves the church that he's writing to and loves her members because they share with him a common confession of the truth. But John is not the only one. There are many others who love this church that he's writing to and love her members. Who are they? They are all those who know the truth, he says. This means the truth not only keeps all who come to it away from errors, away from deceptions and dangers and ultimate ruin, the truth also creates a fellowship of love. The truth of God creates a commitment in the children of God to welcome and pursue others who confess the truth of God as it is revealed in Jesus Christ. As verse 2 says, the truth of God is an internal force. It is within us, and it's an eternal reality. It's with us forever. So as a power within us, and as a reality bigger than us, the truth of God is ruling over us not us over it. And one of its most obvious forms of dominion 
this truth of God, is to create a fellowship of love that receives all that the fellowship needs. It receives it all from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. Now, if you know the truth, one of the best things you can hear about someone else is that they are walking in the truth. So John says, verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. John is setting a very important example for us here. We should change our tastes, change our preferences when it comes to how we regard other people. We may be glad to meet someone who likes the music we like. We may be glad to meet someone who likes the sports teams we like. We may be glad to meet someone who likes the novels we like. This could go on, right? We may be glad to meet someone who likes the foods, the board games, the economics, the politics, the politicians we like. We might be glad to meet those people. And you shouldn't regret being glad to meet those people. It's a kindness from the Lord that there's a few people you like in the world. If you don't like anybody, let us pray for you. (laughs) But, oh, there's a big B-U-T here. The people who cause us to rejoice greatly This exceeds gladness. The people who cause us to rejoice greatly should be those people who are walking in the truth. So you and I have to change our tastes and our preferences about people because we should not be reserving our rejoicing greatly for earthly passing away commonalities and uniformities among men. John is setting a great example for us. We should change our tastes and preferences so such people who are walking in the truth become our favorite kinds of people, even if they don't like our music, even if they don't like our politics. Who are your favorite, rejoice greatly kind of people? Now you know what the answer should be. People who are walking in the truth of God and the truth of God the Father and the truth of God the Son. And if they are not the people that you rejoice greatly over, you got a problem. You do. Your heart is disordered and darkened by earthly things. Things that are not forever like the truth. Change your tastes. Change your preferences. Ask God to help you. He will, but he will not if you do not ask. James 4. What then is the substance of the commandment mentioned in verse 4? What's under the lid of walking in the truth? Well, John tells us what the substance of this commandment is that he refers to in verse 4. He tells us what it is back in his first letter. And this is so clean, we just have to read it. It's 1 John 3.23. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us 
by the Spirit whom he has given us. To believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, means that we trust, we lay our whole life upon that which, be, which has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe in his name. Name is always synonymous to the works of that man, the work of that mighty one, his power, what he has performed. To believe in the name of Jesus Christ says there's no other power that can be named among men that I have taken shelter in. To believe in his name and to love one another. And beloved, before we move on, this will help us where we're going in this letter. We are not loving one another if we are not pressing the name of Jesus Christ upon one another. Now, you're doing that if you are a sincere worshiper and when you gather on the Lord's Day, when you join your voice to the praises and the petitions and the prayers and you participate in the communion of saints and the public worship of God, if you're doing that as a believer, you are pressing that kind of love by pressing that name on one another. So much gets started in the Christian life just in public assemblies of worship for the sincere believer. But it can, of course, grow, and it should grow. Now, beginning in verse 5, John shifts his attention from walking in truth to walking in love. You can see that in the text. It really shows up at the end of verse 6. In verse 5 and 6, he's really beginning to tell us about the priority of love. And he ends at verse 6, so you should walk in it. You should walk in love as surely as you walk in the truth. Now, I want you to notice a conjunction. Now we're getting fun, right? Conjunction, junction. Notice the conjunction between verse 6 and 7. F-O-R. The word for is there. You should walk in love for many deceivers have gone out in the world. Here's what John is saying, why he's pressing the commandment that we should love one another. Love those who hold to the truth of Jesus Christ. John is saying, keep your love up for other Christians in the Christian church. Keep your love tight. Don't let it get slack and loose so that a lot of other things can get in between you and other Christians. Keep your love fresh. Don't let it be like hamburger left out on the counter overnight. Keep your love up, tight, fresh, because if you do not, here's the conjunction, you will be swept away like a flood by the deceivers of the world. And it's very possible that the background to John's letter is that a leader in the sister church is not listening anymore to the presbyters in the church John writes from. That their love has grown cold and they are not being willing to sit and be taught about the doctrine of incarnation, the doctrine of Christ coming in the flesh, because they have been listening to deceivers. That could very well be the background. 
But for all of us, the bigger point is, if you let your love grow cold, if you are fruitless in love, you will soon be rootless in truth. Not because love produces the truth, but because coldness in love always neglects the truth of Jesus Christ. Always. It's a guaranteed formula. Coldness in love towards other Christians always is a weakening of your zeal for the truth of Jesus Christ. When you start to become cold toward other believers, you become cold toward the truth that had previously made you all into one tight fellowship of truth. What is the opposite of love? It is not hate. The opposite of love is not indifference. The opposite of love, beloved, is murder. The opposite of love is every violation of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Herman Bavink, a fellow we appreciate around here because he's high on the list of the faithful dead, said we are murderers when we kill our neighbor's soul. This happens when we flatter our neighbor's pride, incite their evil lust and desires, feed their anger, encourage their lust for revenge, and crush, cr crush their faith by ridicule. And stop speaking to them, I might add. We are murderers when we stop speaking to them of Jesus Christ. Now, praise God. We may be, by nature, a very shy and quiet person. But on the Lord's Day, we get to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You just did it tonight. You spoke to one another of Jesus Christ. And you might not even have known that you were doing that good work, that you were throwing fresh coal on your love. But you were. Don't grow cold towards these things. Now, I do want to spend a little bit on verse 7. For we see again that love and truth are married and cannot be separated. Verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Let's take these words piece by piece in quick order. These deceivers do not confess. To confess something in the New Testament is to publicly declare it with sincerity, free of coercion. It's what every member of the Church of Jesus Christ has done when they publicly stood up and confessed their faith. It's the same word. In Luke 12, 8, Jesus uses the same word that John is using here to say, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. That's the same word, confess. John 12, 42, we learn that many of the Pharisees in Jerusalem believed in Jesus secretly, but would not confess him, meaning they wouldn't go public with their faith. 
What John is saying is that these deceivers do not publicly confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. They always find ways to avoid that confession. Some of them boldly avoid it. No, I would never confess that because I'm a Gnostic. They might say that. Or some might just silently never confess it. So deceivers refuse to confess what those of the truth are glad to confess. One of the common Christian church membership vows that a lot of churches use, including this one, is do you believe in one living and true God in whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is God the Son, come in the flesh. Where did that come from? You see, it came right from our text, didn't it? It put the confession in the mouth of all believers that John says all in the truth would confess. Now let's look at the word coming. Deceivers do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now the coming of Jesus Christ means he existed with God as God before coming into the world. His entrance into the world was not by being created like you and I were created. The entrance of Jesus Christ into the world was by his coming. He was in the form of God, but he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's Philippians 2. So the confession is not, the confession that John is pointing to that's being contested by deceivers is not a confession about the Father coming, nor is it a confession about the Spirit coming. The Father is God, but he did not come in the flesh. The Spirit is God, but he did not come in the flesh. The Son is God, and the Son, who is Jesus Christ, did come in the flesh and now continues in the flesh in his place of glory at the right hand of God, the Father. And so the way that John phrases it, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, suggests an open-ended continuation of his being in the flesh. And why did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? Why did he who was God with God come into the world, come in the flesh? Because you are in the flesh. You are in this stuff. You are in body, bone, and blood. And in body, bone, and blood, you have sinned against God. And you have died in the flesh. So Jesus took that form that you were in so that he could stand in as your substitute and bear all the penalties that your sin deserves from God, sins committed in the flesh. He bore them in his flesh, and he gave unto God all the obedience you and your flesh were required to give. He gave it, and in this way, he became your perfect substitute. And he says, now you can have all that is mine because I have taken upon myself all that is yours. This is the blessing of adoption and justification and sanctification. So these deceivers, they are not of the truth because they deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And so John adds, watch yourselves 
so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Watch yourselves so that you do not shipwreck your faith, so you do not apostatize, so that 30 years from now you are not loving any Christians. You're not singing psalms and hymns with any Christians. Watch yourself that this doesn't happen to you. Watch your love that it doesn't grow cold. Watch your truth that you don't ever come to the point where you refuse to confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. And John adds, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So to go on ahead and forsake the Son as confessed by the church, according to Scripture, is to lose the Father, too. You cannot say, I have the Father, and refuse to confess the Son has come in the flesh. John is saying, you don't have either. You have no God, no matter how religious you are, for the Son is the only mediator between God and man, for he has come in the flesh. So we must confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now those who do not confess, or who have not confessed yet, they could be one of three kinds of people, I suppose. They could be unbelievers on their way to faith. They are the kind of folks who are in a church community. They are listening, but they have not yet become willing to confess him. But they may in the near future. You could be that. Or you could be a believer who has just not been instructed yet on what God requires of you. And here it is. Here's some instruction tonight. He requires that all believers confess that Jesus Christ has come in the, fa- in the flesh. But third, those who do not confess could also be of a different party. They could be unbelievers who are harboring or protecting or even, even teaching the deceptive idea that Jesus is not who the church has confessed him to be. That he is not the eternally existing God who stooped to come into the world in our flesh. Now, if these are the people who are not confessing, then you are the very ones John is talking about in the remainder of this book, in the remainder of this letter. And so he says to all of us, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now you might say, hold on right there, Apostle John, Presbyter John. I thought we were supposed to be rich and great in love. Where's the love in keeping the door closed and talking to the Jehovah Witness on the porch? Where's the love in that? Where's the love? Beloved, this is love for your elder brother. His name is Jesus, and he has come in the flesh. Now, we should be cautious here. It is, it is my understanding that John's use of the word teaching identifies those who we are to not receive as those in a formal position of advancing the heresy that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh. 
And there are such people. He's not referring to just any unbeliever who doesn't know Christian doctrine, but still doesn't believe it. He seems to be referencing those who have a teaching work in these final verses. But maybe you yet need to be emboldened to even reject these people for the honor of your elder brother who has come in your flesh. Maybe these words from J.C. Ryle will embolden you. He that is not zealous against error is not likely to be zealous for the truth. What does zeal against error look like? Beloved, it can look very much just like verse 10. Not being a church that welcomes just anyone who wants to have a kind of ministry among us. There are those in the Fox Cities who even deny, as official church teaching their church, they deny the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Their teachers should not be welcomed so that they would be properly arrested in their spirit by our disregard for their errors. So we have learned tonight that truth and love are married. And there is a love that indeed is the good work of a cup of water and a loaf of bread to the starving, relief to the poor, kindness to a neighbor. There is a, there is a love that we owe to every man But there is a love that we owe to one another, John is teaching. And it's a love that's peculiar to the fellowship of the truth, fellowship of the gospel. We owe one another a love that keeps pressing upon each other, the truth of God the Father and God the Son. And praise God, by the Spirit of God, you do that every time you gather to sincerely worship him. So the Spirit is getting this done in your life. But it can grow. And it grows wherever you can rescue a brother or a sister who is not desiring the truth anymore, who's growing cold in love. Go get them. Watch yourself. And if you are doing well in that, watch somebody else and love them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, blessed unto us, printed with indelible ink upon our hearts, what is true, what is chaff, due to the errors and folly of men, chase it away. O Lord, build us up in the truth, for you are truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.